I'm Nick Andrews, and this is Game Theory, our podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, hosted by me and my brother, Chris. In this episode, we welcome a special guest from our hometown to discuss man's relationship with big game. Each year, tens of thousands of men, women, and children as young as 12 gather in groups or venture solo into the great outdoors in search of big game, as they have for 300,000 years. But unlike our ancestors, here in the 21st century, one cannot simply head out and harvest an animal. There are protocols aimed at ethically and logistically managing the population of both the big game and their predators. Typically, the demand for licenses required to hunt those game far outweighs the supply, so states turn to lotteries and point systems to determine who can hunt which animals, which sex of animal, in which locations, when, and with what weapons. In recent years, it's increasingly appeared that some hunters have been bizarrely lucky in winning tag lotteries, while others have been snubbed for decades. So what's the best way to decide who gets to harvest the resources in their own environment? Welcome to another episode of Game Theory, our podcast about strategy, competition, decision-making, and the like. Chris, it's a pretty cool episode. We did an episode recently about Wyoming, and now we're going to do another episode about Wyoming. I'm kind of excited. This one, to me, it builds off of things we've done in the past with the northern white rhino, but it's a lot of interesting things going on right now in the world of hunting. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about this episode, too. We are definitely on a Wyoming theme. And we're changing gears a little bit. Last time it was about women's rights, equality, making progress, setting an example. This time it's about ways the Cowboy State can improve uh, with its hunting practices. Yeah. So um, hunting, I, th- I find to be one of the most misunderstood parts of being from that part of the world. I don't know what your experience is living back east, but I think hunting in general has a reputation of... It's something that rich people do or kind of country people do as like a hobby, but which is true. That is part of it. But there's also like a deeper thing. There's ritual to it. There's um, and there's actual practicality to it. So a couple of things we're going to talk about here today is a how the hunting system works for obtaining a license to kill an animal in a specific area and how that system could be rigged. And the other thing we want to talk about today has to do with conservation strategy. So what what did you learn in researching this show for conservation strategy? Well, Nick, I had to draw on my high school memories when I took college prep biology. I learned a lot about animals and populations and ecosystems, and it's important to have good ones. In other words, I tried to understand conservation strategy, and it was just beyond me. And I don't have a long list of hunting experiences because I've never drawn for tags. Oh, well, that's Chris. That's totally fine. We, I, I got a guy for that. We got a guy. I got a guy. How about that? We got How about guy. that? We got a guy. We're going to welcome on our old high school buddy, Trent Williams. Trent, and I, I made Trent famous. He's famous now on YouTube, but I gave Trent his first platform, which was calling high school basketball games with me back in the day. Now he's a big, big outdoorsman, but even more shocking than having a YouTube following Chris is he's married. Yeah, I, I never thought I would see the day. Uh, it, I hope she doesn't come around to it, uh, but... Whatever the case, man. Congratulations to you, Nick, Nick. You said you said I got a guy. We have the guy. Trent is the quintessential Wyoming outdoorsman. I agree. I agree. Of course, Trent. How are you, buddy? 
I'm doing well. How are you guys, Nick? It's been it's been a long time since I've heard your voice enter my ear and actually been able to talk back to you. It seems familiar, <laughs> yeah, Nick, at the same time, you know. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Same, actually, I said, I just keep seeing your Facebook group going up and up and up. So Trent Williams Outdoors <laughs> is where you can find him on Facebook and YouTube, and we'll put links everywhere and people can subscribe. Uh, so despite all of our catching up, I, I, I follow your stuff on Facebook and you're pretty opinionated about things that are going on in Wyoming. And one thing as a big hunter, uh, you are involved in various lottery systems in Wyoming for procuring tags and licenses to hunt. So first things first, we're recording this in the fall of 2021. How's the season going? Uh, it's going well. Um, I mean, September's kind of my month to hunt elk. That's my main passion. Um, I actually just killed a deer last weekend with my bow. Uh, oh, nice. Nowadays, stretch out hunting seasons as long as I can. You know, growing up and stuff, you know, you just had weekends, you just had certain blocks of time. But now I'm fortunate enough, I guess, to where I've kind of shaped my life to be around these hunting seasons. And I string them out as long as I possibly can. I've got tags, like you mentioned, in Wyoming. So if that's really the bulk of what I've got going on, I'll string that out. And then, uh, go hunt in Montana, Arizona, wherever I, I really can. But yeah, Trent, what, what's your earliest hunting memory? I mean, I feel like hunting is just a way of life. I mean, it's just a, a given out in the mountain West. When was your first trip where you kind of remember being excited about being on the hunt and seeing people take down an animal? I, I mean, the earliest memory um, shaped kind of like that would just be my dad let me go on deer hunting trips where we, you know, actually camp and go in the mountains. And I was, I don't know how old I probably was seven or eight years old. And he kind of jokes that, you know, he killed a few deer back then just to make me happy. But uh, <laughs> my mom still to this day says, you know, I, her words were, I thought you were faking it. I didn't think there was any way somebody could, you know, love the outdoors that much. I thought you were just trying to make your dad happy. <laughs> so I guess, I mean, even just growing up, being really little, I remember going hunting with my grandpa for rabbits just outside of town and, and stuff like that. So, but as far as, yeah, hunting memory, I know probably seven, eight, nine years old, my dad took me up to the mountains and, and that was really where I, I guess, cut my teeth on really loving this stuff. Yeah. It seems like it's not going away anytime soon. You just bought in <laughs> all, all day, every day doing that kind of stuff. So obviously technology, fish finders and like different things are around now, but what do you think has changed the game? in the last 10 to 15 years, like what, like, is there any specific invention or any style that's kind of, we see analytics disrupt anything. Is that kind of crept into hunting? <laughs> what, what's the analytics of hunting? Chris, I just read a paper about analytics and firefighting. So get off my ass. <laughs> um, I guess the, the biggest thing to me, besides just technological advancements, like you guys are talking about is just information um, maps. Like, I mean, I started when I was, I don't know how old we were, 15 years old when Google Earth became a thing, somewhere around there. That sounds, that sounds about right. Yeah, that, that was like the first real time where outdoorsmen could get online and see satellite imagery of where they wanted to go, where they'd been going for years, everything like that. So now you have satellite imagery, both mixed with, now you have land ownership maps. You know, you can get a lot more up-to-date stuff. People can scroll around at work and find new spots to go hunting where, you know, even just 15 years ago, that wasn't the case. You had to physically go boots on the ground, go, you know, scout these spots out, go see if it interested you, go see if there's animals there, or now you can quite literally throw a dart on the map and check it out from your computer at home. And that has changed the game, not only for residents, but people coming from anywhere. I, I see a lot more people from out of state that are quite frankly, a lot more serious when they draw that Wyoming tag, mm. you, know, you know, guys from back East, 
who come and this might be their one shot and they've yeah. done all the homework they possibly can. And they're here for a month or a month and a half. And so the fact that everybody seems to, if you're not prepared, it's your own fault, just like in everything else, because the information's there for you to get. That's pretty amazing. I, I actually just read a news story out of the economist about how open source intelligence for mostly through satellite imagery is now allowing people in the public to figure out stuff that like governments would have kept secret years and years ago. Like it used to be a big secret that we had these like spy planes flying over the Soviet union. And then, a couple of weeks ago, these guys just looking at open source satellite imagery and maps were able to find some pretty cool, uh, pretty kind of scary stuff about China's nuclear weapons. And I remember a couple of years ago, there was a there was a photo of Dennis Rodman standing next to Kim Jong Un, and then there was another photo of Kim Jong Un standing next to this like nuclear device. And so these people were able to take Dennis Rodman's height and Kim Jong Un, uh, measured Kim Jong Un's head. And then compare the size of his head to the bomb and figure out information about like North Korea's nuclear weapons program just because they have this like open source info that they wouldn't have had years ago. So it's amazing to hear that that's also revolutionizing the way people prepare for hunting and camping, I assume. And so you're so much more informed about the environment you're going into. Yeah, I keep waiting to, you know, where, just like anything else, where's it going to end? Where can I, what is today? September 23rd? Mm -hmm. How long before I can look at a satellite imagery from, you know, last night on September 22nd and see right where elk or deer were? I mean, how far are we away from that? It can probably be done right now if you're smart enough to, you know, figure it all out. But it is amazing. Like you're, you didn't watch a movie that was filmed before 1995 that has better camera technology than your phone. Right. You know, like that's, it's unbelievable. All right. So we were discussing the tag situation in Wyoming and some other States, the lottery system. And so the way the lottery, a lottery is a lottery. You put your name and you get it. You don't. The key here is that means that some people in a true lottery system can go their whole lives without hunting a specific animal in a specific area at a specific time with a specific weapon. So obviously there should be bonus bonus points or collection points or whatever, like a credit card. So will you break down Wyoming's bonus point system and how, say for moose or something, how I would go about getting a tag if I were a resident and then if I were not? Okay. If you're, as far as moose is concerned, it's basically the same thing. Um, residents have a point system for certain trophy game animals, such as uh, moose and bighorn sheep. Mm. That's really the only ones we as residents have to worry about. They have a, um, point system for non-residents for moose, bighorn sheep, antelope, deer, elk. So basically what has happened is the, the game and fish has put their, uh, I guess, kind of experiment out to the non-residents to see how the point system would work on them for, let's just call it the main three for antelope, deer, and elk in Wyoming. And so Wyoming, back to your original question of the moose stuff, we all put in year after year, you can put in and get, I think it's 25% of the tags go to a random pool where 75% of the tags stay in that point system. So any year I can apply and have a chance to draw a small chance. Um, but your odds get higher as you gain the amount of points it takes to actually draw these tags. That's same for resident, non-resident. The, sure. the, the biggest gripe, I guess, that you probably saw on Facebook was that we have that lottery system, a true lottery, random lottery in place as residents for antelope, deer, and elk. And it doesn't appear to be truly random. The same people seem to get tags year after year while other people are sitting on the sidelines. And so I don't necessarily know the answer. I just knew something had to change. And I I play this points game both in Wyoming and in a lot of different states, other states. Mm -hmm. 
And the point creep is so bad because nobody wants to miss out. Now the, the guys that, you know, think back when you guys lived here that barely hunted or only hunted when they drew a little mountain tag, let's say now everybody's in the pool. Mm-hmm. So now you're dealing with that competition of fighting for every resident in Wyoming now is in this pool, this rotating pool. And I, I guess nobody really knows the answer. Wyoming Game and Fish has reached out and created a task force this year. That seems to be a pretty good buzzword about everywhere nowadays, the task force. <laughs> but, uh, they've created a task force and they hope to get changed. The problem is the residents of this state can't seem to agree on any way we should go. Everybody's got their own idea. So it, it sounds like the, it sounds like the fundamental problem is that the demand for, for tags is it stays pretty high all the time, but now the supply is decreasing because the pool of applicants is larger. Is that a change from, from how it used to be? Did it used to be a little bit more limited and selective? It's not really a change from what it used to be. As far as I know, it's just a change from the hunting culture. You used to have, people that went out and, you know, hunted deer and elk one weekend a year and that was it. Now you have guys like me who go out every weekend or you have guys just like we're talking about the non-resident pool. You have guys where their main passion is hunting and they figured out just like me how to put in for all these different States. And this is what they're going to do. This is what they enjoy doing. And so that in a sense has, has kind of created this imbalance, if you will, or, or extra pressure on these tags where, yeah, the supply and demand is, just continually, I guess that demand is getting higher. Yeah. So I guess it's, it's a cultural thing. Yeah. That's what's Somewhat. interesting to me because I think, and we, Chris, you and I discussed this when we discussed the, the Northern white rhino and whether or not like that, I don't even consider that hunting. I, I call it more like mining an animal where they just kind of just take the resource and it's not like population control or anything, but as a Wyomingite or a Utah or a Colorado, and you're like, this is sort of a resource for me as a citizen. We're like, if you kill an elk, there's your meat cost is gone for the year and you get some vegetables and you kind of, the animal sort of pays for itself over time. If you, you, you finance your gun and your equipment and whatnot, but when it becomes too much of a hobby situation, that resource that's part of living in the state that's open to you becomes less open to you. If it becomes a more difficult to hunt in areas that don't have a draw or just more difficult to draw areas that are close to home. So we're Trent, where you live in Southwest Wyoming is two of the more, more popular areas I think are right there with north and south of the interstate if that's still the case and how can you hunt in your own backyard it's like not possible yeah I mean the the to, just to put it in perspective that the tags you're talking about north and south of the interstate both hover around two percent so I'm sure Chris can rattle off the numbers but if you put if I apply it every year you know for that two percent tag I, I forget what the what it actually is but it's like 20 percent or 18 percent of people will never draw that tag yeah in, in your life of applying for these tags so that's, that's just, I mean, the supply, it, those odds are only decreasing. And this, when you watch the same people over and over who seem to have that lucky card, have drawn it, that's where, you know, like I said, the bonus points, I'm not so sure that uh, those are the, that's the answer. There's a lot of ways to go about it. There's preference points, which is um, just a straight, you know, let's say the tag takes this year, it takes 10 points to draw it. Only those with 10 points will draw it. There's bonus points, which means your chances increase every year, but it's still random. There's bonus points that square themselves so that every year that you are unsuccessful, you, you know, you get your points squared. So you get that many more names in the hat. There's all kinds of ways to go about it. Um, it's you're, just a, so you're sort of implying that it's not maybe necessarily a mathematical problem and that maybe there should be an investigation. Well, 
I've, yeah, I've implied that plenty. The problem is there's been an investigation about every year they get audited and every year they pass. So now we need to investigate the auditors. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Maybe they're getting tags every year. I'm not sure. Nick, this is like that time in Truman Elementary when we were at the school fair and uh, you were drawing names out of a hat to see who, which students won a bike and you drew your own name and then you drew my name. Yeah, I drew my own name to win a bike at like our at a fifth grade fair. Try I drew my own name. They were I like, was "Wait, there. I was probably pissed off too." <laughs> yeah. So if 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 I'm if I'm trying to play this system, knowing that there's a chance that I might never get the most desirable tags, I'm trying to go out and find as many people as I can to kind of lump together with and say, "Hey, group of eight or ten guys, if any of us gets this tag." we should try to like bring the others along for the hunt. I mean, is that something that you do or, and you, do you see that pretty often with people going out every season? Yeah. And I guess I don't so much. I don't personally um, do that. I, I have just as much fun hunting what's called our general units where I can just go buy a tag at the grocery store and go hunt. But there are guys that do that. And there are also in these lottery system tags, um, a thing called a party permit. So we all apply basically under the same number. That number has got to be drawn, but if I think it's up to seven. If, if that number, which basically acts like one person is drawn, all seven people draw the tag. Mm. So that in itself, the computer's got to, you know, factor that in when, when tags start getting drawn. But yeah, there's, there's people that put in that that's their, I guess, kind of way to go about it is, you know, all 10 guys put in separately. You'd think that the odds would hit on at least one of them every once in a while. And then they all go just kind of have camaraderie and share the hunt and, and do whatever they do. Yeah. So that spreads the wealth, but it doesn't necessarily increase your odds because you still just have the one entry. It just applies to more people. Yeah. It could, it could be you getting the short end of the stick every year and your buddy drawn every year. You know, it's just <laughs> however you want to go about it. So on Facebook, you mentioned that you like Nevada system. Can you tell me the differences? Nevada system is is um, is still purely random, but it's that bonus point squared system. Mm. So I know I don't probably have to explain this to you guys. Not our audience you, either. The, this is a nerdy. This is as nerdy. Uh, as okay. It gets. Well, then there you go. Yeah. The difference between zero points and and ten years of applying, you know, is it is a hundred names in the hat. Sure. Um, and the fact that it still stays random, so you still have that ability every year. Somebody draws with. I mean, call it no points, but it's it's your point squared plus one because you'd have to couldn't start at zero. Yeah, I think I've I think I've heard of that concept for voting too. Like, like every four years or whatever, when people start remembering what the electoral college is and complaining about it and trying to find solutions to it and whatever, I I heard this idea. Uh, they called it quadratic voting, where they would base votes on how much you can afford. So you pay for a vote, but each additional vote you buy costs. Uh, to the uh, to the next power of two more money so in theory that limits like the very very wealthy people who would buy a bunch of votes because it gets more expensive as they go uh, i mean obviously you're still requiring free citizens in a democracy to pay for a vote so it's a ridiculous concept but that's a way to i guess level the playing field just using yeah just using simple mathematics that sounds like a great system to me Chris, I had a nerdy, I had a nerdy solution. Are you ready for it? It's as nerdy as it gets. Can't get more okay. nerdy. 
I think I like a Fibonacci voting point system. Fibonacci voting points. So, right? Because like think of like the, the compounding way that it goes up. Trent, do you know what the Fibonacci sequence is? No, I was just about to just butt in and say this is the part where it goes over my head. But <laughs> Wyoming game and fish could use you too. We could you know, you could figure out a mathematical way to make this all work. Honestly, I think we would just talk over them and just scare the shit out of them to the point where they just gave in. If they're out there listening, we're trying to get hired. Uh, my name is Chris. Is this a discouraging situation, or is it, do you think that there's any like a, a fix happening, or is it just going to keep spiraling? Because it seems the way you're talking makes it seem like in the last five years or so it's gotten a lot worse. Well, uh, and how much of it is just me and other people complaining? I mean, that's mm. the, really could be the bottom line too. But the fact that okay, you know, I've been putting in the tag I put in for has hovered between six and ten percent my entire adult life from from as long as I've been keeping track, and I've never drawn it now in almost twenty years of applying. And you see these, I've, since I've worked out at Solvay, I've now seen the same family draw a 2% tag that we were talking about earlier three times. So it's just the fact that, you know, it, it feels like you're, we're all playing the same game, but somehow with different cards or however, whatever analogy you want to use to throw in there. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, it's just the fact that our system seems to be broken. There seems to be states that have at least tried to fix it and, I kind of came out and said, you know, I'm against preference points because of the demand it puts on the points itself. And the other thing I think you don't want to get lost in this is you're dealing with animals. You, you know, it's, you're, it's more so than just me complaining. It's more so than numbers. You're dealing with the resource and you're dealing with fluctuations and populations and all kinds of things that are out of our control. But, you know, to, to have this kind of pressure on what the draw odds themselves or the draw process Plus, you know, the way that maybe we should have better management in certain certain situations too before we get to this point is another topic all on its own. So Trent, I just I just ran the, the math there for this family that's drawn a two percent tag three times. So to so to beat those odds, they have like a one in fifty chance if it's a two percent tag. So one over fifty times one over fifty times one over fifty. This family experienced something that happens 0.0008% of the time. Like that's, that's a little bit, I mean, that, that's a bridge too far. That is very yeah, lucky. So explain that, right. Explain, and there's people with that worse than me. There's people that have been putting in for this six to 10% tag every year. You know that you have, let's just say 5% to make it easy every year. You know, you have a 5% chance and that's fine. But then to see your, neighbors get the tag and there's there's another guy out at work i think he's up to like 41 years or something putting in for the same tag and never drawn it That's i mean yeah. nick what was the tag dad got years ago he got and we i had been hunting for like two or three years like i forced my dad to start when i was 12 and when, when i was 14 he got 100 which is the one north of i-80 uh like literally first year um we put in for about 10 years after that and then i moved to mississippi and stopped hunting and we only got it once and it was very much everyone was like this is weird like you're a salesman like what happened <laughs> like this has happened the first you've never hunted like needed help like we had never we our introduction into elk hunting was there and it's not like that anywhere else but it was a very it was a weird situation and people were there was a little side eye like ah you're pretty lucky well first the bikes and then area 100 mm -hmm. yeah it was fun. Yeah. It was. I, I see why it's so popular. Like you just, it's right on the interstate. The elk are a completely different kind of elk that I, I think anywhere in the world, there's nowhere like that. And it was kind of easy. No, it was fun. You, just, you have to manage that kind of stuff, that kind of terrain differently. That's the that's the other main difference. You can't have if you want to have a desert herd of elk like that, like what Nick's talking about in 
relatively flat land that have no cover with any kind of, you know, trees, then you have to manage that differently. You have to basically just manage the population with the tags, with the tags you're giving out. Mm-hmm. And so if, if you didn't do that, you wouldn't have a population out there. That's right. the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Can, so can you, can you explain how that works? Cause I, I was talking to somebody, I mean, surprise, surprise, the folks that I work with out here in Washington aren't exactly uh, the most avid hunters. So somebody asked me the other day, how is it that giving people license to go kill a bunch of animals actually helps the herd? This person was convinced that it was like some big conspiracy that hunters just want to do their evil hunting and it's not actually good for the animals or good for the planet or whatever. So so how does population management through hunting actually help? Well, you, I mean, the, it's a very loaded question and you'd have to go back a long ways and we'd have to talk about this for hours to get the full answer. But to try and keep it as short as possible, the North American model of conservation was developed, you know, 100 years ago. And it basically takes out the boom and bust of natural populations. If you just let, the big thing now that you hear all the time is why can't you just let them live? Why can't it all be like Yellowstone National Park? And you can see what happens in Estes Park. We got too many damn people. That's basically the bottom line. So you can't have these boom and bust in populations with prey as well as with predator. So usually they'll, offset each other. You have prey populations, let's say elk population dries. As they crash, let's say wolf population dries, grizzly bear population dries, and you just, you, as a North American model of conservation, you have a set number of animals that you believe is healthy for that ecosystem, and you try and keep it within that realm. So to give the people, the citizens of a state or a country, the freedom to go kill those animals for food keeps that population in check where the biologists believe it should be. And it also gives, uh, quite frankly, animals monetary value. If you read far enough back, basically every game species of animal, and when I say that, I'm talking, you know, basically deer species, deer, elk, antelope, wild turkeys, uh, geese, everything was hunted near extinction because there was no monetary value. It was all hunted purely for A, food, or B, to get them out of their way for farmland or whatever we needed that land for. Uh, They're nothing but nuisance animals when all you're trying to do is grow crops and raise cattle. So you protect those animals through money. Everything boils down to money. If people are willing to pay for these tags, it it places value on animals. And so people are okay with these animals being on their land and sharing it if they know that there's value with them. And so you hear about things now, like I've heard about stuff in Chicago where they're going to, in order to curb the deer population, you know, they're going to go in and um, basically spade and neuter deer. So the state's going to go in and fix deer and pay for this project in order to get done, where you can have the citizens pay for a tag, you know, actually gain money and take these deer out of the population. So as with anything, there's ideas that sprout up all over, and, and hunting can be, you know, you can put it in whatever category you want sport, tradition, anything else, but it's keeping, it's healthy because it keeps that ecosystem healthy to where the biologists have said it should be. Yeah, Chris, interestingly, so uh, after I got married in Jackson and the COVID wedding, we went to the elk refuge because my wife's family hadn't been out there. They wanted to see the elk. So we're talking to the guy and the guy's like, they've started to do more hunts on the elk refuge because there are, there are multiple herds and the population, they're, not, they're, they're, they're worried about A, their fear of humans, and be the population for bulls. There are a little bit too many bulls, and they're getting too big. Um, now wolves have moved in. There are two packs of wolves. They're, they think there are three packs of wolves, and they're, they're worrying over this. So now 
the Jackson Hole Elk Refuge has hunts usually every year or like not quite that frequently often. First of all, it's an incredibly difficult hunt because they can see you from like multiple miles away. But secondly, it's, it's really can kind of a competitive and it's, it's a fun thing for hunters is a challenge. And as a result of that, people really want to do it, but it helps yeah, the population. The, like they're, they're literally, they look like sitting ducks at a zoo, but that's not the case at all. The, the population carrying capacity is a really interesting concept. Our, so our, both of our loyal listeners, thanks mom and dad, will remember the cicada episode. We talked about their survival strategy as a species. Their whole goal is to just flood the market with as many bodies as possible and satiate their predators. Well, with larger animals, like with game animals, you can't do that. The ecosystem doesn't have enough resources to keep all of them alive and keep the growth going. So Trent, these crashes that you mentioned, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think that's because the system gets so imbalanced. There are so many consumers and not enough resources. And so it's harder for the herd to kind of keep itself alive. It's harder for individuals to find enough nutrients, enough space to basically survive. And so the population crashes because they rapidly run out of things at the same time. And then they become, as they become sick and they become weak, they become more prone or vulnerable, I guess, to predators. And so that's where you see spikes in like wolf populations, for example. Is that, am I capturing that right? You're, yeah, you're right on the money. As exactly what you're saying, the nutrients, you know, to simplify it in my own brain, the nutrients in the land that feed the elk and deer as they drop, the elk and deer were at a high level, they drop. And then, yeah, you've got basically predators taking advantage of that. And when predators are healthy, they have more offspring. So that population will rise. But it, I mean, you guys are talking about Jackson and that is a perfect little microcosm, if you will. You guys must be rubbing off on any of these big words. Oh. I don't even know. Yeah, that's a, that's a perfect example of basically you could call that the entire U S you have, you know, millionaires basically encroaching on what was nothing but an, an elk wintering ground. That's all Jackson was. You, you, I mean, you, as soon as you pull in, if you paid attention, you, you can just see it. All the mountains roll in to Jackson, and that was nothing but an elk wintering ground. And now you have multi-million dollar, billion dollar homes that have encroached basically into the feed ground, and now they have to do things because there's too many elk. So the same people who wanted the elk in their yard now don't want that many elk in their yard. So it's, there's so many, I mean, if it was just as simple as, you know, as what the North American model of conservation was initially to keep this streamlined, but now you throw in, I mean, you, you work with it every day, Chris, you throw in the politics of such with all this kind of stuff. And you've got so many more decisions that need to be made. That is not necessarily the best for wildlife. Wow. That's, I mean, the, the, the tough thing to me is that there seems to be such a misunderstanding um, on like various different levels, even when the people who are making the decisions are in agreement about the general philosophies. Like you in Wyoming, you're having disagreements about who's going to be allowed to harvest the resource that you are around. And then from a national or regional standpoint, like who, who with the money wants the animals to live. And like the fact yep. that Chicago is going to spay and neuter deer instead of just letting the homies from the South side take care of it. Like that would be easy <laughs> right. solution. Like everybody yeah. in Chicago has a gun. I, I, I don't, yeah. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And like I, the deer thing, they've been getting, increasingly aggressive and annoying across the country because you can't hunt them in your own backyard. You can't hit them with your car. They'll screw your car up. Like they're going to, the animal wants to live. So we have to figure out a way to be symbiotic and not just allow everything to just kind of exist the way we think it did. That's not, we are an animal also. We are a player in the ecosystem also, and it's irresponsible not to, to participate with our brains, which is our, you know, our greatest tool. 
Maybe the city of Chicago can find the middle ground and give people licenses to instead of go hunt the animals, train the people to spay and neuter. That way, you get both. You get the dumb idea and you get the state telling people what they can and can't do. Yeah, that's it. I think we're on something here. There it is. Love to well, Trent, thanks for hanging out with us. We plan to pick on you again if we have any uh, Game and Fish stuff that we want to talk about. I think that everyone's going to enjoy having talked to you. Yeah, and uh, if anybody else, you know, as long as you're somewhat nice to me, if anybody else has any questions, you can just reach out to me. I, I can't promise that I'll debate you quite like Chris can, but I'll lay my points out there and we'll see where we go from there. Yeah, so uh, go ahead and promote your stuff. Where, where can we find you? Uh, the easiest way is, like you said at the beginning, just Trent Williams Outdoors. That's uh, my Facebook page, my YouTube channel, Instagram. I should probably change, but if you if you put in Trent Williams Outdoors, you'd probably still find me. But it's at T Williams WY, and that's the three main. Awesome, Trent. Yeah, cause some people out there think jackalopes are fake. They think they're not real. Oh, what what's the what's the situation like with uh, jackalope tags? You had one of those recently? 